In today's episode, we arrive at Exodus chapter 7. God sends Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh to demand yet again that he let the people go. He arms them with the ability to perform miraculous signs and explains that Pharaoh will represent God to the Egyptian king, while Aaron will speak them words of as Moses' prophet. Pharaoh's heart is hardened, and God sends his first plague against the gods of Egypt. Good morning. Today is Wednesday, November 16th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. Thy Strong Word is underwritten by the Lutheran Heritage Foundation. Learn more about them at lhfmissions.org. For joining us this morning to discuss Exodus chapter 7, please join me in welcoming my guest, the Reverend Ryan Climola, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Toledo, Ohio. Pastor Climola, good morning and welcome to the program. Good morning. Good to be with you, Phil. Oh, it's always great. It's been a long time since we've talked, uh, probably all the way back to seminary. I know we connect a little bit on Facebook, but I'm excited to have you here on the program. Uh, just to catch yeah, me up was, and for you go ahead. I, I was just thinking it's been twelve years, so yeah, lots of life between our uh, our paths crossing. So great to great to be with you. Well, that's wonderful. And while we can't catch up completely, I'd love to hear how your ministry and life is doing right now. Share with the listeners a little bit about what life is like there at Trinity Lutheran in Toledo. Yeah, it's a it's a wonderful place here in uh, at Trinity. We got a church and a school. We have a at chapel this morning, we got 190 students here. I've been here for just over 11 years, and um, my family uh, got five children. They've all been in the school or are in the school here, and we're just uh, we're just blessed by the uh, work that God gives us to do here. That's that's amazing. That's great. Well, today we're doing one of the more exciting chapters, in my opinion, of uh, Exodus, and that is we're getting into Exodus chapter seven, and seven introduces us to the first plague. So it sets off a course of God getting glory over the gods of Egypt. Uh, Like I said, a really exciting and fairly well-known passage in Scripture, but I'm sure we're going to be able to draw some some good insight out of it this morning. But before we begin, I'd like to invite you to start our time off together in prayer. Yeah, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us your word, which is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We thank you for the life you've given us in this world and and for giving us a a clarifying uh, uh, measure of that life uh, through through your word, which shows us who we are and who you are for us. We pray that as we uh, set aside some time to study your word today, we would be enlivened by it, that we would be encouraged in our faith, strengthened in the face of things that are beyond our control to know that you are, in fact, in control, and we pray that you would continue to soften our hearts and, and give us the new life that your son Jesus has won for us on the cross. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Pastor, the way we like to do things is we're going to set the stage. Give us a little bit of information about what has been going on uh, up until this point. You, know, you don't have to go back to the beginning of history, but we certainly want to catch up for those who uh, like a refresher of perhaps what we talked about yesterday. So set the stage for God sending Moses and Aaron back to Pharaoh. Yeah, he's uh, Moses has uh, kind of been the unwitting or un, unexpected uh, instrument of God, and and now we we finally get him uh, onto the stage, kind of with the the limelight. He's had a couple 
uh, well, he's had one encounter with Pharaoh that, that didn't go um, as smoothly as, as you would assume it would have went, but he's, um, he's now being uh, um, still, it's, it's funny just reading uh, through uh, from the burning bush, you know, uh, experience all the way through his calling. He's, he's always dragging his heels. And even uh, to the end of chapter six, he's still dragging his heels and he's saying, I, I, I don't think Pharaoh will listen to me. And, and the Lord um, is, is not going to let uh, Moses' objections, objections stop him from, from doing the work he set before him. But, you know, Moses has a little bit of a point. You know, he, he goes before Pharaoh. He gives him the message that God asks him to give or tells him to give. And then, predictably, Pharaoh turns him away. He makes life harder for the people. The people turn against Moses. And Moses kind of turns against God in our last last chapter. And he's just like, I don't understand. I tried what you told me to do once, and it didn't work. But God had revealed to him that it won't work for a while. That God is building up to something. So I just think it's striking how Moses is being sent to Pharaoh with a message that he already kind of knows in advance isn't going to work. Because God wants these opportunities to get glory over Pharaoh, over the gods of Egypt, and to make you know a name for himself among his own people. Yeah, wow. And, and when you frame it like that, you have to um, <laughs> you have to admire uh, Moses's um, <laughs> his his willingness to do what God has told him. I, I can't imagine if if God told me as a pastor, "Hey, you're going to go uh, be a pastor at this congregation, and everybody's going to reject what you say." It's not, it's not going to work. But uh, um, so, so oftentimes, looking back, you you wonder how much that happens. Fortunately, there are those moments, those highlights. But but yeah, what a what a hard thing to go through. Yeah, it's it's so difficult to trust in God's process, especially when we think, from our perspective, that we could do better. Lord, you know, if you would just uh, soften Pharaoh's heart, right, force him to do what he doesn't want to do, or send some mighty plague. Oh, wait a minute, that's what he's about to do. So I tell you what, let's yeah. read some. Let's read some text. I'm going to step back just a little bit into Exodus chapter six because really this narrative resumes on verse 28 of six after we get a genealogy of Aaron and Moses. So I'm going to read chapter six, verse 28, and we're going to go through maybe 13 of chapter seven. Here we go. All right. On the day when the Lord spoke to Moses in the land of Egypt. The Lord said to Moses, I am Yahweh. Tell Pharaoh, king of Egypt, all that I say to you. But Moses said to Yahweh, Behold, I am of uncircumcised lips. How will Pharaoh listen to me? And Yahweh said to Moses, See, I have made you God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people go out of his land. But... I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then Yahweh said to Moses and Aaron, 
When Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a servant. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as Yahweh commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Well, then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staff. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. All right, that is our verses, at least the first half of the chapter that we're covering today. So, Pastor, the Lord said to Moses, I've made you God to Pharaoh, or like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. Uh, take us off from there. What's going on? Yeah, no, I, I think this is great. And, and kind of just backing up a little bit into chapter 6, it's kind of kind of neat. you got that genealogy, uh, family tree portion, so to speak, in, in the middle of verses 14 through uh, through 27, but um, it kind of picks up um, verse 13 after Moses's first encounter with Pharaoh. He he says he objects to God. He says, "I'm I'm of uncircumcised lips." And then he repeats himself at the end, kind of showing us that I think this is all at the same place. So it kind of, if you, if you picture it like a, a, a movie scene or a TV show, um, Moses has had this encounter with with Pharaoh, and then he stops back to, to reflect on who he is, and then the, the scene jumps back in, and, and the Lord kind of, I, I think the Lord is addressing that objection once again, as the Lord does. He's he's always um, giving Moses encouragement to continue in the task that he's given him, and he says, I, I think it's a beautiful uh, picture here where, where God says, you're going to be like God to Pharaoh, and, and Aaron, your brother, will be your prophet. He'll be alongside you. It's, it's kind of interesting the way the Lord tells Moses he'll be like God to Pharaoh, which, as I understand it, is actually the prophetic office. And then he says, and, and by the way, Aaron will be like a prophet to you. So, so Moses gets to be the prophet of God, and then Aaron gets to be the prophet of God's prophet. Right. I think it's like Aaron to Moses is like the first example of a, a vicar in the Bible, right? Because <laughs> we have yeah. Moses yeah, I like that. who is trying to get out of it. Back in, in chapter four, and he's like, you know, I have, you know, heavy tongue. I can't, I can't speak for you. And Exodus chapter four, verse sixteen, uh, God says, He shall speak for you to the people, and He shall be your mouth, and you shall be God to him, or as God to him. Interestingly enough, right. the text doesn't have the word like God. It actually just has God. Uh, but we understand it just as you explained it, right? He's representing God, and now Aaron is going to be the prophet of Moses, who is <laughs> who is the spokesperson for God. So, yeah, right. God doesn't, like, smite Moses for his disbelief or even his waffling. He doubles down on his mercy, equips him with Aaron, sends him back to the God King of Israel. And, I'm, I'm sorry, pardon me, of, uh, of Egypt. That's got to be a, a frightening thing. You know, the Lord tells us that we must be prepared to stand and give an account and stand before kings and governors. Uh, but here Moses is in a time when, you know, this, 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 this king of Egypt, this pharaoh, would have unlimited, unrestricted power to do whatever he wants against him. That must have been terrifying. Yeah, and, and for me, it reminds me of, of words that we say uh, pretty much weekly, if not weekly, in our, our 
divine services, you know, when the, the pastor stands up and announces the absolution, he says, in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ. And I, and I kind of just picture this, that God's giving Moses and Aaron the charge to say, you go stand before Pharaoh and you say, in the stead and by the command of Yahweh, all, all that I'm giving you to say. Yes, that's a, a connection I think we shouldn't miss. You know, because we look at Pharaoh and we, and we think, all right, here's a guy who has absolutely no reason to even entertain an audience with these people. And yet here comes Moses, and Moses is speaking in the place of Yahweh. And even though, even though uh, Pharaoh doesn't believe in Yahweh, or at least not in the same way as the Hebrews would, he, he somehow moved to allow this audience. We see God's hand at work. And so... When we look at Moses, then, we see a sinful person, full of doubts, full of his own faults and sins, and yet here he is speaking on behalf of God as if it were God himself. So, brothers and sisters, when you're sitting in your pews and you see your pastor and he's forgiving you your sins, and you kind of scoff because you think of the last time that maybe he didn't do something you liked or you think of a sin that you might know about him, put that out of your mind because God uses sinners for his good purposes, and this is a perfect example. Yeah, thanks be to God. Yep. <laughs> right. So he says that Pharaoh won't listen to him right here. Again, he reiterates that in verse 4. You know, we've talked about it, you know, a couple times, and we'll continue to talk about the concept of God hardening Pharaoh's heart or Pharaoh's heart being hardened. But maybe take us a little bit through that. You know, Pharaoh will not listen to you. God is really, he's being prophetic here not necessarily saying that there's a divine action, but at the same time, God is sovereign. So how do we how do we reconcile that? God's hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Yeah, no, and, and that's that's probably the the biggest thing I spent wrestling with as I as I was, you know, reviewing this text. And I think it's probably one of the hardest sticking points for for us when we think about this is is it says in verse three, quite clearly, God says, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And and you're just like, well, that just sounds awful. It, it brings to mind the um the um the the life of Judas, you know, Judas who was um, you know, some some may say that that he was used by God to his demise in order to advance the gospel and, and Pharaoh kind of uh seems like one in those tracks, but but as the story unfolds, if you follow the hardening of Pharaoh's heart, you you see that um God is just giving Pharaoh what he's he's taking for himself. Pharaoh is reluctant to listen to God's word. He's reluctant to do what God says. And then finally God uh, kind of confirms him in that that hardness of heart. And and it's um an interesting thing that that shows up in scripture. Psalm eighty one verse eleven and twelve um, it talks about the Lord hardening his people's heart. He says in uh, Psalm 81, verse 11, But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me, so I gave them over to their stubborn hearts. And uh, Romans 1, verse 24 through 28, that's a, a great passage where, where we see that God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature, the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. And God gave them up to dishonorable, dishonorable passions. And it, and it goes on, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. So I, I, I think that's helpful to see 
what this hardening of heart is that that God does to Pharaoh. He's he's allowing Pharaoh to have his hardened heart, even though he he his de, his desire his disposition is always to to soften hearts, to create a new heart, to remove hearts of stone, um, and and to give us a new heart in Jesus. Well, and it, it goes both ways. You know, God is the one who removes hearts of stone, as you said. It gives us a new heart in Christ, but He doesn't force people to believe. He, he, right. through the Holy Spirit, calls people to faith. We can't, on our own, come to faith, except that he calls us, as we Lutherans proclaim. But at the same time, he doesn't. He could just as easily soften Pharaoh's heart, force him to do something he doesn't want to do, in order to release the people. So God's plan is not our plan, or ways are not our ways. And when God says he hardens Pharaoh's heart, I love how you put it, right? He's just really doing giving Pharaoh, giving in to what Pharaoh has already decided to do, and that is to be against it. Um, I think yeah. another another way to look at it is because God is sovereign, you know, we also have to understand that God could force Pharaoh to do something outside of his own will, but doesn't. So when it says he hardens Pharaoh's heart, it acknowledges that it's not as though Pharaoh is more powerful than God. It's not as though Pharaoh says, well, I'm going to refuse God, and therefore I'm more powerful than this God of the Jews. No, God is in control, and so therefore it's a both and. Pharaoh hardens his own heart, and God hardens Pharaoh's heart because he lets him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's a that's a big thing there, and and I I think part of the the thing with this too is we have the benefit of hindsight, so we can look back and see what was able to unfold because of the hardness of Pharaoh's heart. Now, there there would not have been the ten plagues. There there might have just been the, the serpent-eating uh, serpent scene that we're going to get to in just a minute here. Um, but, but this allowed God's glory to be fully revealed over and against the gods of Egypt in a way that had Pharaoh capitulated right away, again, we can see this in benefit of hindsight. It's It's not a good thing we're saying, but God was able to work good through it. I remember back when Moses and Aaron first went to Pharaoh, and Pharaoh, either in honesty, says, I don't know who this Yahweh guy is, or in mocking, says, I don't know Yahweh, who's that? We we see here that in verses, uh, let's see here, five, it, God says, the Egyptians shall know that I am Yahweh when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. So, God being known amongst not only his own people, but amongst all peoples, is extremely important. God has either revealed his name or given fullness to his name, Yahweh, to his people. And now the Pharaoh, who kind of is the embodiment representation of the divine beings of Egypt, he's saying, Mm -hmm. your God, this this God of of slaves, not very powerful. But Yahweh says, no, I'm going to tell you who I am. You want to know who I am? I'm getting ready to tell you. And I think that yeah. adds some drama to what happens next. Yeah, and just one more thing that adds to that drama. In verse 3, um, our, our uh, English Standard Version says, "Even and though I multiply my signs, I like um, going a little more extreme with that word for multiply. And you could translate it, even though I pile up my signs um, of, uh, and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. So it's like heaps of evidence that the Lord is going to put out here um, just to show his glory. Yeah, and he will, too. You know, we actually number them 10, but the the 10 is just a nice way of teaching it. Really, God's just one thing after another 
And as we're going to see, and this is the part that I find fascinating. I don't know if you did much research into this, but for me, I love how everything that God exercises a plague against, exercises judgment against, is connected to the sacred life of the Egyptians. It essentially represents one or multiple gods of the Egyptians. And so God is literally, you know, walking into the domain of, of their gods and showing his power over them. Now, of course, we know that their gods are not, but they don't know that. So when they right. see Yahweh, when Pharaoh sees Yahweh just being powerful and, and acting over and against their own gods, then they stand up and they take notice. And of course, eventually, as God had predicted, we heard yesterday, Pharaoh is going to not only let them go, he's going to drive them away. And <laughs> when God's done with them, he's not going to want to have anything to do with them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, and I love that. Um, I, I was going to bring this point up later, but it fits now that um, we don't get uh, an enumeration or the naming of those gods of Egypt. And I think that's a, a telltale that, that they, they're not even worth mentioning. They're, they're pretty much ignored, but it's quite clear from the, the things that are, um, quote unquote, attacked or, or uh, destroyed uh, through the plagues that, that there are deities, Egyptian deities, false gods behind each of them. And it's, it's kind of powerful to see that uh, this face off, they, they can't stand against the one true God. Yeah, I think it's academically uh, fun, so to speak, to bring in the in the gods that would have been connected. But you're 100% right. The gods aren't even mentioned. So, you know, it's not even worth mentioning. And furthermore, as we pointed out earlier, Pharaoh isn't mentioned. Or just Pharaoh, king of Egypt. We can, in history, trace it back. And there's, a, you know, maybe a couple different candidates for which Pharaoh this was. But the fact that even Pharaoh's name isn't mentioned is like, no, no, none of this matters compared to God's salvific activity. Absolutely. Now, verse 7 says, Now Moses was 80 years old, and Aaron, his older brother, 83 years old, when they spoke to Pharaoh. Now, this, we have to note, is probably, we'll say middle age. Maybe, yeah, maybe it's middle age, a little older than middle age, because they're you know, going to live to like 120 or so. So still, though, 80 years old, even middle age, even if you're thinking this is the new 50 or 60, uh, you know, they're a... Uh, they're, they're not at the age you would think that God would be sending them to stand up to the king of all the earth. Yeah, that that is a, a kind of a notable thing causes you to pause and say, wait a second, aren't they getting close to the end of their life? But yeah, there was a, a different uh, life expectancy at that time, so we can think about it differently in those terms. Yeah, we do think about it differently. But still, I just think it's interesting. And we also have Aaron, who's the older brother. And oftentimes in the text, Aaron is mentioned before Moses, especially in genealogies. But Moses, of course, who's writing this, who's sort of the main actor here, he's the one who's God to Pharaoh, and Aaron's just the prophet. He's uh, then, of course, mentioned first here. But yeah, they speak to Pharaoh, and then it uh, doesn't go as well as they think it will, but I don't want to quite get into what they do next. Um, anything else you want to talk about in these first seven verses before we move on? No, I, I think we covered uh, quite a bit of ground. I do um, one, one point um, we we missed is that, um, or that's notable is that uh, in verse four when he says, "Pharaoh will not listen to you," then I'll lay my hand on Egypt and bring out my my hosts. 
a lot of times we just gloss over that term, but that, that literally means army. And, and so the Lord's bringing out his army here. And so fast forward to um, after the Red Sea, what, what's their first stop is, is towards the promised land when they send out the 12 spies. And, and, and God has literally called them as an army and he's told them, you guys can go take over this land. And the, the 10 were bad, two were good story is, is that the, uh, Caleb and Joshua said, yeah, we can go do what the Lord says he's going to have us do. And, and the 10 uh, led the, the mass to say, no, we're, we're not able to. We're, we're pretty weak. And, and you got to imagine what a ragtag bunch this must have been, all these overworked, underfed slaves that, that are called the Lord's army. But I, I think there's some beauty in that to know that the Lord um, sees his people as, as weak and um, uh, destitute as we, we may feel. He, he's able to do great things for us, and, and he knows what he's capable of doing through us. Well, and there, of course, is the obvious connection that it's God who is doing the work. Yeah, so he certainly selects a motley crew to be his people and to be his army, and in these last days to be, you know, his evangelist as we go out and proclaim Christ's, you know, word of salvation for all people. But when people look at us, you know, they aren't to see in us, you know, the, the savviness of our rhetoric, but rather the, the actions of God uh, at work. And yeah, we see that here, too. And he says, you know, he's sending Moses, he's sending Aaron. They're going to do miracles by God's power, and he's asking Pharaoh to let them go. But when it comes time to say that they're going to be free, he says, I'm the one who's going to do it. So it's not as though right. he says, don't worry, Moses and Aaron, you guys will get these people free. And he doesn't say, don't worry, Pharaoh, Pharaoh's going to, you know, he's going to let them go. He'll, be a, he'll, he'll change his mind. No, God makes it clear that it's God himself who will do the work. And that's useful Absolutely. for us to understand as we look at this. It's also important for us to understand when it comes to our salvation. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's, it's all God, and, and God is able to use an 80-year-old murderer who's not welcomed among his people to lead his people, and, and God's able to use his, his weak and, and destitute people to do great things, not because of them, but because it's God who does the things through them. And it's, what a great encouragement for us with all of our objections to what God might be having us do, to know that we are his hands and feet, and he's the one working through us. Well, when we come back from our break, we're going to get into what they actually do to try to convince uh, he, he tried to convince the, the Pharaoh to, to let them go. They were going to do signs and wonders, but will he listen? Well, we kind of already know he won't. But we're going to go ahead and take that break. When we come back, Pastor Climol and I will keep going with Exodus chapter 7. See you on the other side. With me today is the Reverend Ryan Climola, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Toledo, Ohio. Folks, remember, if you have any questions or comments about today's show, feel free to direct them to pastorboo at gmail.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R-B-O-O-E at gmail.com. I respond to every email I receive. 
Now, Pastor Climola, before the break, we were just about to get into the verses where Moses and Aaron appear before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh summons his magicians. Just to remind the people, I'm going to read uh, the verses once again. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, When Pharaoh says to you, Prove yourselves by working a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, Take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh, that it may become a serpent. And so Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. So he did. They did that. And uh, take us through that, because it seems like the uh, Pharaoh's magicians were able to replicate that. Uh, what's going on? Yeah, no, it's, it's a crazy, um, crazy scene. And they, uh, um, one notable thing is that this is a different word than is used when uh, when Moses uh, is first at the, the burning bush scene. He's uh, told uh, his the staff changes into a serpent. So it's 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 not exactly the word for snake or serpent as we have it. It's also used uh, to describe monsters here. Um, but but yeah, they, they're they're told to do this work of the Lord and um, and it and it's accomplished. Um, it, it is quite quite crazy, confounding um, to think that the pharaohs, um, magicians, sorcerers, wise men are able to recreate this with their secret arts. I mean, what a what a bizarre thing this must have been. But the the kind of the the final word is from God, though, as as Moses and Aaron's monstrous serpent snake swallows up those. Who knows how many the the number of uh, sorcerers and magicians that that did this by them by their means um, they, they they were left with nothing. Yeah, you know I'm thinking about what you just said about the word there being used a little bit more generically for like a serpent or a sea monster or dragon, some sort of you know weird fish like maybe a crocodile. Uh, I think the Hebrew yeah. is there uh, tanin and. Mm-hmm. You know, a crocodile actually makes more sense, I think, for the for the area. Even though uh, serpents were seen as sacred in uh, Egypt, but then, of course, a lot of the animals were. You probably couldn't get around an animal that they didn't have some sacred connection to. But crocodiles, interestingly enough, in the um, afterlife myths of the Egyptians, the crocodile, if you weren't judged worthy to go on to the to the, the land or the Sea of Reeds, then you would your heart would be eaten by a crocodile. So that's just it's got me thinking about that a little bit. I've never really looked into yeah. it. So now that you said that, it gives me a nice rabbit hole after the show. But yeah, they yeah. are able yeah. to replicate it. And I almost wonder if it's even by sleight of hand. You know, because at this point they're able to do essentially a magic trick that mimics not significantly, but mimics enough for Pharaoh to dismiss the signs that they're given. So even if they're throwing down their serpents and they're turning them into, into snakes, and these guys could probably go on uh, pen and Teller and, and, and fool them. Probably uh, not so much, you know, today, because, you know, I don't, I don't know. The point is Pharaoh is convinced enough, because he wants to be convinced that his magicians and his gods are more powerful than Moses and Aaron. But, yeah, it makes you wonder yeah. how that was done. Yeah, and the text isn't clear. It could be a, a dark uh, magic of of the devil who's who's able to twist God's creation. Um, you know, I kind of don't like to lean that way because the devil doesn't have creative powers. I think he's he's more destructive, and and this seems to be um, a more productive use of a stick. I mean, <laughs> towards God's ends, but but for whatever reason, God allowed this this trick to take place and. Um, so whether it was sleight of hand or whether it was uh, uh, 
kind of, I might say, supernatural occurrence uh, on the hands of the sorcerers, magicians, and wise men. Um, it's it's a question mark for us, but I, I think you made a good point. At the, the, ultimately, it just allows Pharaoh to stay with his heart hardened and, and not be convinced. Well, another reason, for what it's worth, that I lean towards maybe just like a magic sleight of hand kind of stuff is because they give up about the time that God sends all of the insects. And so they could probably get a hold of a few snakes and some frogs. It could be hard of them to get a hold of thousands of insects. So I don't know. Yeah. Um, we'll right. Just, we'll just see. Yeah, well, we'll we see these, definitely uh, predisposed to believe them. Yeah, right. And, and, and I, I like the point you're making, though, because we'll see them do this two more times with the uh, first two plagues, the, uh, the, these, this, uh, entourage of Pharaoh is able to reduplicate the, the works of Aaron and Moses, well, the works of God, ultimately. But by the third plague, when the gnats are there, and, and yeah, I like the point you're making, is there, that's way too many things to do, and, and they they give up, and, and it says that they, um, in, in verse uh, chapter 8, verse 19, it says that they, they kind of conclude or, or wave, wave their white flag, and they say, this is the finger of God. So they, they kind of give a confession of God based on their inability in the third flag to reduplicate it. Yeah, and that's another thing, too, and I always think about this. You know, they're seeing Moses and Aaron do these, uh, what we call them signs, of course, but maybe from their point of view, are they just seeing a couple of fraudsters doing tricks and they're trying to prove to the Pharaoh that these guys are you know, untrustworthy? Or do they really see this as, well, this is a competing god, and now we have to match the wits of this god? Uh, again, we don't know the answer to any of these questions, but it's just the kind of things I think about as I try to get my head into the situation that's going on. But but still, at the end of the day, though, we have verse 12. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. So as you said, they were left with nothing. Um, even even God is able to demonstrate, or, or sorry, I should say, God is able to demonstrate, even for these magicians, um, that, yeah, something else is going on here, which is why after a few tries, they just give up. Yeah. There's there's something I came across that I, I had underlined in my Bible at some point, so I'm sure I came across this, but you know how it is with studying the Bible, you learn so much you forget it. Um, oh, yeah. The, um, and, in Second Timothy three verse eight, there's two magicians uh, named, um, and uh, I guess rabbinic tradition by the the Lutheran Study Bible notes tell us that um, that the two named magicians there were of of this entourage that they uh, um, Janus, Janus, and Jambres, or I don't know if the J is silent, probably since they were Egyptian names. But anyway, so it says in Second Timothy three verse eight, just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses. So these men also oppose truth, men corrupted in mind, disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was of those two men. And so I, I, I like that. You know, they're, they're left with nothing. Their, their folly was made plain. It's, it's almost comical about how, you know, they, they, they're like, oh, well, we can do that snake trick too, but, but they can't do the, their snakes then eat the other snakes because their snakes are gone. Yeah, and that and that. That's interesting because that text, of course, did you you said where the text comes from, right? I can't remember. Yeah, well, anyway, Second Timothy three. Second, yep, that's it. Yeah, Second Timothy three. Yeah, so that's in the context of of just sort of godlessness, um, and during these times, these these last days, essentially. Yeah, and the people who are are trying to trick the faithful, 
Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I, I knew about that connection, but I hadn't thought about it. Yeah. Well, what happens next then, of course, is Pharaoh's heart is still hardened, as we, of course, knew it would be. So the Lord sends his first plague. Anything else you want to do before we read uh, the first half of the plague? No, I, I think we should probably move forward. We've got a lot to say, probably. <laughs> it sounds great. So we're going to read verses 14 through 19, which is about the first half of it. Here we go. Then Yahweh said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, Yahweh, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says Yahweh, By this you shall know that I am Yahweh. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And Yahweh said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Well, the first thing that stepped out to me is that here comes Moses and Aaron, and they're saying, Hey, Yahweh sent me. And they turned the whole water into blood. I love it. Lead us yeah. through that, Pastor. Yeah, yeah. So um, I think it's it's kind of neat to think about um, Pharaoh going out to the water here, because some 80 years earlier, uh, Pharaoh's daughter had gone out to the water, and that's where she found Moses. And so that story um, should be in mind here at the, the Nile River scene, and, and so kind of a, a cool connection there. Um, but also, uh, this is something that, that kind of marks as a, um, a refrain throughout the, the plagues that are to come, the plagues that are to follow. The fourth and the seventh plague also begin in the morning. Um, and, and so we'll, we'll see that kind of repeat this, um, this pattern a little bit. But, but yeah, I, I, we've already mentioned how the, uh, th- this water side, this Nile, there's so many uh, gods that the Egypts worshipped, uh, the Egyptians worshipped that, um, false gods, of course, because there is one true God, but the Egyptian God of, of water and life, and uh, there's a God for the Nile, and, and all of these things are, are spoken against here. Um, but but the Nile's got such a history for God's people. I, I think there's significance in that this is uh, the place of the first plague. Um, um, draws back to mind the fact that the Egyptians were, were throwing uh, the sons of the Israelites into the, into the Nile to, to kill them when they were being born so that their population would be under control. And then after we get through the 10th plague of the Passover, we, we, they, they actually go through the, the Red Sea. And so we're brought to another body of water where, where the water um, is again significantly washing away um, the death that's shown here in the the uh, killing of the fish and all of the living creatures in the water, um, the water becomes a, a source of death for the armies that would chase after God's people. And so it's, it's there's there's so much that could be said here that's just within the story, a, a beautiful uh, kind of tying things together and seeing how God is using water as a source of judgment. And of course, as a 
as a Lutheran pastor, you, you can't help but think about what the significance of water has to do with our salvation story. And, and so the, the life that comes to us through the waters of baptism where our, our sins are drowned and, and all that's wrong with us is washed away. Um, God, God is certainly able to do mighty things with water and, and with his word. Right. God uses water often to, he weaponizes the Red Nile against the Egyptians, but he uses yeah. that same water which he destroys with to then deliver, um, you know, a, a redemption to his people. And we can take that all the way back to the water that the, the infants are being cast into, to the redemption of Moses, and then, of course, the waters of baptism where our old self drowns and we're delivered from our sins and brought into the kingdom. Yeah, I, God is a God of order. We keep saying that because it's so true. And as we go through these texts in Exodus, he just demonstrates it more and more. Uh, for those who do like the, the sort of historical stuff, you know, lots of different cultures would consider rivers uh, and the lands around them to be really important. And, and they are important, right? That's why we see cities built up around waters. But for the Egyptians, they did have some gods of the Nile, as you brought up, Pastor, this would be Sophus and Kanum. They were the gods of the Nile. They watched over it. They protected it. The Nile itself was sacred and revered. But then the Egyptians also considered the Nile to be like the bloodstream of Osiris. So the bloodstream of the god who was the ruler of the realm of the dead, Osiris. And so here we have God taking the bloodstream of one of their chief gods and turning it into blood. Or at least right now he's just threatening it. I don't know if we've gotten quite there yet. And so... He's going to turn this into blood. And so they who spiritually saw this as the blood of one of their gods, well, the god of these enslaved Hebrews, well, he's going to make it actual blood. And we always see this getting God, getting glory over these gods. I love it. I love it. Yeah. yeah. Very, very so, cool stuff that's taking place here. And there's, there's no doubt about who is in control of his creation here. Now, uh, Anything else before we read the rest of our chapter and the rest of the, the first plague? No, let's get into it. Here we go. Verses 20 through 25. Moses and Aaron did as Yahweh commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and he struck the water in the Nile. All the water in the Nile turned to blood. And the fish in the Nile died. And the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened, and he would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after Yahweh struck the Nile. So they did it. You know, he says, Yahweh sent me. He smacks the water with the staff, and it's blood. Or is it? You know, critics of the Bible want to say, oh, well, this is some natural phenomenon, and we're going to see that as a common refrain as we go through the different uh, plagues where people are wanting to explain them away. Even uh, some Jews want to explain these things away. But I'm content to uh, see it as it's read, and that is that it turned into blood. Do you have a different view, brother? No, I hope not. <laughs> that's a that's a great place to be because this this is a miracle of God, and and I think that yeah, we've um, with our rationalist minds, our our logical minds, we we'd love to understand it um, in different ways, and and I think that that's something that um, I I remember early on kind of. Uh, 
I, I don't remember what stage of life it is, but I think it was even before, long before I thought about being a pastor, you know, Sunday school era, you know, just hearing these stories and thinking, oh, okay, so there was, or maybe somebody was even <coughs> teaching it this way, but, you know, that when there's a lot of frogs um, and then the frogs are go away, then, of course, the gnats are going to show up. And then if there's a lot of gnats, of course, that leads to flies trying to give a, a natural explanation to these things. And, and I think there's even been times when when we've slipped up and, and maybe even made um, thoughts about how we could have, well, this is just red algae that's forming. And there there is a, apparently this is something I read in, in one of the commentaries that I looked at where, um, the, the Nile River is apparently typically green, but during part of the year, it, uh, with the cycles of the season, it clears up and then it turns to a yellowish color and then it becomes red with a algae that takes over it. But one of the things that that commentary noted is that when that natural process takes place, um, it's usually red for close to a month or like 21 days or a month or something. But but here there's there's so many things that make this clear that it's um, it's an immediate thing that takes place. It's an all-encompassing thing. It's not just the waters in in the riverbed itself that might be connected to each other, but it's even waters and vessels that that are turned to blood. And, and it's done in seven days. It go, it goes back to its its normal uh, state. So so yeah, I, I think it's very safe. I think it's very faithful, and, and it's important that we see this as a miracle of God. Well, and let's give Pharaoh and his magicians some credit too, right? So if Moses and Aaron, at the time when the Egyptian Nile would typically turn a reddish color, were to go up to him and say, oh, look, we turned it to blood, they would go, no, yeah, we've seen that before. <laughs> but that's not what they do. They replicate it, right? Through their secret arts, they replicate it. Now, whether they turn something to actual blood or sneakily mix something in and made it look like blood, doesn't matter. The point is, they saw it as enough of a sign that it deserved a response. If it was just a merely natural event, and Moses and Aaron were just trying to take credit for it on behalf of Yahweh, then Pharaoh would have laughed them out, and that would probably be the end of the story. But the fact is, it was something supernatural. Now, this isn't to say, brother, as you know, that God can't use natural things in order to bring about uh, judgment or changes in people's lives or to make signs. He does natural things all the time. It's just not right here. Yeah, absolutely. I, and I think that if, if we take it as natural, it kind of um, short circuits the entire um, scene that's unfolding here, that, that God is God and Pharaoh and the false gods of Egypt can't stand against him. Right. And that's exactly the point, right? Because, you know, they, they know what's natural and what's not. And this was enough to have them, you know, take notice, even though it did not change Pharaoh's heart. And in verse 24, all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink. So it seems like whatever this uh, happened, it was either just the surface water or they're able to, you know, through the sand, filter out some drinkable water, uh, or maybe they're just attempting to. But regardless, this happened for uh, seven, it says seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. I, I, get, I infer from that that it only lasted for seven days. Uh, or it was just seven days until the next plague. I don't know if there's a, one way to read it that's better than that. Yeah, that, that's 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 interesting. I, I guess I was just kind of reading it as that you know it, after seven days it, it went away, but it doesn't clearly say that there. So, but yeah, that's that's um, an interesting uh, passage of time without a, a direct reason for for that past that time being mentioned. But 
But yeah, it's 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 one of the things that's notable about this uh, first plague and, and the second plague as well is that it it affects not just the Egyptians but also God's people. The uh, the word all um, shows up in um, in the plague accounts over fifty times, and and so not, another point to to make that this is you know God's hand is that it's it's an all encompassing thing, and, and we see that that throughout this um, the the chapters that are going to come up here. I'm so glad you brought that up because I don't want to over allegorize it, but but oftentimes we experience the side effects of God's judgment in this world, and we think, you know, well, why how can why do bad things happen to good people, so to speak? And the the reality is, we as God's people aren't exempt from the effects of God's judgment against the world. Now there will be a time where God will actually segregate His people and will prevent them from being affected with the darkness and some other things coming down. And, of course, that's leading up to the Passover. But but at this point, yeah, we can look back and say, see, here even God's people have to sort of deal with the negative effects of what the Pharaoh has brought in. And we can extend that yeah. even a little further. The Egyptians, the average Egyptians probably are in just as a state of poverty and destitute and work that, that, their, uh, that their slave counterparts are. You know, not everybody is this wealthy Egyptian ruler. It's really everybody having to suffer God's punishment as a result of the Pharaoh's obstinance. And yet, God has a plan, a plan that will redeem not only his people, but it will witness to the Egyptians, and some of those Egyptians will end up going with the Jews as they leave. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I, I like that, that connection. I, I, I think that's a safe allegory because we, we see it play out. Uh, that's one of the problems I, I think you can run into with allegory, allegory, allegorizing things is when you start to uh, make conclusions that aren't evident, but that is evident that there, the sin in the world and uh, the effects of sin, and, and yes, you can even say the judgment of God against sin in this world, we, we feel the effects of that. Well, and of course, you know, the, the whole adage, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? Well, if you're Lutheran, you don't believe that there is such a thing as good people. But anyway, right. thankfully, yeah. we're all saved through Christ. Well, uh, we have a few minutes left in the program. I want to give those minutes to you. You know, maybe sum up for us. Tell us what we should take home. Maybe uh, share anything you think is notable to share and give a message of gospel to the people. Yeah, absolutely. There's a, there's something that's kind of come to uh, the front of my mind as I've been reading through this is, is I think this this um, I, I, and I, I'm going to full bore allegorize this uh, this passage for our application, but the um, it, I think this is what we we get a picture here of what happens when you want a world apart from God, um, and and I think that's what Pharaoh wanted. He he didn't want a, a world apart from God's people. He wanted a world apart from God. He wanted them to be his people and and wanted to deny the true God and. And so I, I, I see this as a passage here, this this chapter and the chapters to follow that, okay, Pharaoh, you want a world apart from God. Well, I'm going to show you what the world would look like if I wasn't here with little tastes of, of what the world would be like if I was not in control and ordering the, the creation that I've given to the to the world for the sake of my people. And, and so you want a world apart from God? Okay, you can have chaos. And, and this chaos starts in a very dramatic fashion. I don't know if Pharaoh was bathing in the water when it turned to blood, but he was definitely close to it, the way the story unfolds. And um, it was unmistakable that, that there was 
something nasty that took place. And, and I think that's um, notable for us in this world that God is in control of his creation and, and he keeps it from spinning out of, out of, uh, out of the order that he's given to it. And so that's, that's, a, that's a big takeaway for me is, is life apart from God is a life of chaos. And, and he gives a glimpse of it to the Egyptians here, especially to Pharaoh. And isn't that what we're experiencing today? People, you know, wanting to live their life apart from God, as you said, so, so aptly. And in many ways, we're starting to experience some of the chaos that comes. Is God, you know, hardening people's hearts because that's what they want and he's letting them have it? And we see a lot of the... A lot of the chaos in our world is a result of people not wanting to do things God's way. Right, right. And and the more we see uh, chaos unfolding, tragedies take place, uh, you know, disasters or or even um, man-made events that that are awful. We the more more this happens for us, the more we can um, we could be threatened or, or tempted to have our hearts hardened towards God. But but that's why the Word of God is so important to be proclaimed in these days and to be heard because. God is in control. He's, he's got a better hope and a future for us. And, and apart from that word, the chaos around us is the chaos we'll get. Um, and, and he still uses signs and things for our good. And so I, I love the, the staff that's used so often. Is, um, and I, I think I was listening to one of the previous episodes, um, I forget who it was, but said this is the staff is almost like a sacramental thing where it's, it's a, a visible element with God's promises and word work attached to it. And, and so God has always been about using things to give us hope and a, a future in the midst of a world that's uh, bound for chaos apart from him. Well, amen to that. Well, we're at the end of our program, but I'd like to thank my guest this morning, the Reverend Ryan Climola, pastor of Trinity Lutheran Church in Toledo, Ohio. Pastor Climola, great to talk to you again. Thanks so much for being on the show. I hope we can have you back on. I'd love it. It's been a privilege. Thank you so much. And folks at home, thank you for joining us today. Tomorrow we're going to experience, through Exodus, three more plagues. The plague of frogs, the plague of gnats, and the plague of flies. So tune into that. Hear how God gets more glory over Pharaoh and his false gods tomorrow. Until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong hands.